It was good to worship, doesn't it? You guys sounded good. You sounded good last week, but you sounded better with a girl singing this week, just so you know. <laughs> There's just something about that. You sounded real good. Thank you guys very much. So we're in second part of our series on the life of Joseph. And I want to put up a quote by somebody named Helen Keller. Most of you know, this was a woman that was blind and had a, a real struggle in life. Although, if you would have asked her, she would have said, no, it was, it was fine. She says these words, she says, one can never consent to crawl. When one has experienced the slightest hint to soar. I want you to hear that. I want you to receive that this morning. One has n can never consent to crawl. One can never consent to creep. One can never consent to just kind of make it through a little bit at a time. Once one has experienced the slightest hint to soar. When you know there's something better out there, it's hard to go back to what you know is just not what God has intended for you. And we talked about Joseph last week, and we talked about the fact that Joseph had this, the, the Bible says it this way, one night Joseph had a dream. And that dream changed the whole trajectory of his life. That dream right there, for good or for bad, that dream began to kind of change the way his life went. Joseph had a dream, and he began to realize that this dream was from God, and he began to realize that this dream from God meant that he had a purpose, a direction, a way to go, an intention in his life. He was 17 years old when Joseph one night had a dream and a few nights later he has a dream just like it and it is confirmed and he is convinced that God has a purpose for his life. This is important to understand because it is that purpose, that why that causes Joseph to become the man he becomes. And because of his marriage to his why, because of his love for God's purpose in his life, today you and I are believers. Because of Joseph's faithfulness, you and I are sitting here today. And we get to hear his story. I read a story about a guy, this guy right here. Anybody know who this is? I'd be really impressed if you did. His name is Soichoro Honda. Does that sound familiar? Let me tell you about him. He spent every last cent when he was just a young man on his first piston design, everything. He even sold his wife's jewelry. 
I know, right? I mean, that's just, that's going too far, I think, but you know. And he brought it to Toyota, and Toyota turned it down. So he decides he's going to just forego the ridiculing of the teachers and his friends in that culture. This was not good. You don't get to fail more than once in that culture. And certainly not during or pre-World War II. But he keeps at it. And he does some more work. After refining his design, Toyota finally says, okay, I'm willing to buy it. But there was no concrete to build the factory because World War II was coming around. And now suddenly the government needed every little bit of, of stuff that they needed to make concrete. So he gets his friends together. He begins to kind of say, okay, what resources do we have? What can we do? Can we make concrete in a different way? Because the government's got all that other stuff. What can we do? And sure enough, as time goes by, he finds a new way to manufacture con concrete, and he builds his factory. And he starts ma making these pistons. And Toyota is happy, except for one thing, World War II happens, and the factory gets destroyed by bombing. I wonder at what point I would have given up. <laughs> but so Ichara does not give up. After World War II, he built his first ever motorcycle bicycle, or motorcycle. And the very first thing that Honda came out with was a motorcycle. And then today, of course, everybody knows. How many of you own, own Hondas? Yes. And those who own Hondas, at least for the most part, I've heard some bad stories, but for the most part, people that own Hondas are like, these are the best cars I've ever owned. And it's all because this guy here decided he was not going to give up, no matter what. He says these words, the value of life can be measured by how many times your soul has been deeply stirred. I want you to think about that for a second. The value of your life can be measured by how many times your soul has been deeply stirred. How many times has your soul been deeply stirred? Can you remember the last time your soul has been deeply stirred? Is it possible that we are falling into some level of habit that is so convenient, that is so easy it's the easy way of going that we are shying away from these moments and so that we are experiencing deeply soul steering moments less and less in our lives is that possible is it possible that probably the greatest possible probably that's a that's an oxymoron isn't it is it possible that the greatest weapon that the enemy has is not some crazy temptation that we're looking for, waiting for, but perhaps it is this pull towards living a convenient, easy life that takes us away from deeply stirred soul moments. Is that possible? The Bible says, this is where we ended last time, it says, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brothers? They had thrown him into a pit. 
They said, what are we going to gain if we kill him? I mean, we're not going to make anything on this. And, and not only that, but we're going to have to explain to dad what happened. And that's not going to be good. And so well, let's not kill him. We'd have to cover up the crime instead of hurting him. Let's sell him to, uh, hey, look at that. Those Ishmaelite traders. Let's sell them to him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. I mean, let's do it for the right reasons, right? And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianites traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled them out of the cisterns. Wow, not sure what just happened there. And sold them to them for 20 pieces of silver. 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to where? To Egypt. God has called ordinary people like you and I and Joseph to dream. Do you believe that? There's not a single person in this room. This is what we established last week. There's not a single person in this room whom God has not called to a dream, to a purpose, to an intent in your life. And he's called us. He's, Joseph was ordinary. Trust me on this. In fact, his journey in the next few years of his life is really what turns him into an extraordinary creature. But when God called him, he was just a young man. He was just a 17-year-old boy. The vision that Joseph had and the vision that God wants to give you should be overwhelming to us. To us. It should scare us to death. If it doesn't scare us, it's not from God. The task I had should seem impossible. If it seems impossible, this is evidence that God is in control, that God is in it. If it's not impossible, then it's just something we can do. We got to stop doing what we can do. If we only do what only we can do, then we only do what only we can do. But God doesn't want us to do what only we can do. God wants us to do what he can do. God wants us to do things that we can't even imagine. That is why we are so strong on this why that we have as a church. Jesus will bless you. Jesus will bless you beyond your imagination. Jesus will make you so much more greater than you can imagine. And it's got nothing to do with success. It's got nothing to do with money. It can, but that's not it. God wants to give you abundant life, but it's not the kind of abundance that we have taught, been, been, been taught by the world. It's the kind of abundance that comes from God. It's the kind of abundance that is just absolutely unbelievable. So how do we resist the desire to withdraw into convenience and to push forward? How do we keep the mo going? How can we press through the greatness that God has called us to and not shrink away from it? How do we do that? I think there's some things that kind of 
impact our mo. You lose your mo when you lose your perspective, your kingdom perspective. You lose your mo when you lose your positive outlook on life, of knowing that God is large and in charge, as we talked about this morning in Sabbath school. You lose your mo when you lose hope in that dream that God has, when you start saying, God, is the deal still on? Are we still in this? You start losing your mo. You lose your mo when you lose your confidence in the one that has called you to the task. When you lose your conviction that God can do perhaps something amazing, even through me. Wow, is that possible? You lose your mo when you've lost your values and your integrity. You lose your mo. And as we look at Joseph's life in the next few minutes, I'm wondering, can we see how Joseph was able to hold on to all these things? We're going to go to Genesis chapter 39, and we're going to continue the story. In chapter 39, verse 1, and I'm reading from the NIV. It's going to be on the screen. You can read from whatever version you want. It would be kind of nice to do some comparing here. But it says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Now, I just want you to stop for a moment, and I want you to think about that walk as a slave to Egypt. I want you to think about what it must have felt like. All the things that Joseph was thinking about as a 17-year-old boy. I was dad's favorite. God gave me this dream. I had this beautiful coat. I was, I, 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 I knew that I was going to be great, and now... I was thrown into a pit and taken out of that pit, and now I'm a slave. I'm going as a slave. I'm going to be sold as a slave. I believe that on that walk that Joseph had, Joseph turned from a boy to a man. I believe on that walk that he had, something happened inside of him. He had to make a decision, and this is the question that he asked himself, and I want you to ask this question. At the end of it all, what story do you want to be told about you? When it's all said and done, what's the story that you want others to tell about you? I believe Joseph asked himself that. When it's all said and done, when I get to Egypt, no matter what happens, what's the story that I want people to tell about me? Will they know that I'm a believer of the one true God? Will they know that God gave me a dream and a purpose? Will they know that I have values and integrity? Will they know? And so he makes his way there. Something changes inside on the way to Egypt. And it says there, that this guy named Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, this is an important guy, he was the captain of the guard, he, brought, he bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Potiphar says, I want that guy right there. That's the guy I want right there. That guy right there. He's young, he's strong, he looks like he's got a good head on his shoulder. 
Looks like he's got good shoulders. I want that guy. That's the guy I want. And then the next line. The Lord was with Joseph. I want you to look at this line for a moment from Joseph's perspective. Because if I'm reading my own story as Joseph and I'm in the middle of this moment right here, I'm like, I don't think so. I mean, the Lord was with Joseph when I was home with dad and everything was going great and I had a nice coat and I had a dream, but now I'm here as a slave. The Lord was with Joseph, a big deal. Thanks a lot, Lord. Please, if this is what it means for you to be with me, don't be with me, Lord. How are we doing? Have you been there? Have you ever had somebody say to you, the Lord is with you when you're going through stuff? I mean, I think, I think about Joseph. If God is with me, then why was I thrown into a pit? If God is with me, then why was I sold as a slave? If God is with me, why am I in a foreign land away from dad and those who I love? The Bible says the Lord was with Joseph. If the Lord is with me, why? Why, am I, why are my bills piling up? If the Lord is with me, why is my health failing? Or my friend's health failing? Or my son's health failing? Or my parents' health failing? If the Lord is with me, let's be honest. If the Lord is with me, why am I being victimized? Why am I being marginalized? If the Lord is with me, why is my spouse a non-believer? Lord, I've been praying for him for 40 years now. Come on. How long is he going to be in that pit? How long is she not, not going to listen to me? How long is she not going to come to church when I invite her? I uh, thank you, Lord, for being with me, but look, I need some answers. I don't want to be in the pit. I don't want to be a slave. If the Lord is with me, why are my children struggling with all kinds of stuff? We did the best we could to raise them. Why are they struggling? Sometimes we forget we were children once. If the Lord is with me, why are my dreams not fulfilled? It's not what I wanted to be. It's not what I wanted to do. Suddenly fell in love and I'm now in a job and I'm just trying to make money so that I can pay the bills because I got kids and I don't know what to do. And if the Lord is with me, what happened to my dream? But Joseph didn't say any of that. Why not? Because Joseph decided on that walk. What is the story? that I want people to say about me and about the God I serve. And he did what any 17-year-old would do who knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had a dream for him. Do you? So it says, as we continue, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered as a slave. 
How we doing? And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Egyptian master. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, when his master saw that the Lord was with him, did you catch that? You know, there is not one shred of evidence here. I mean, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying I'm not sure. It doesn't say it. But there's nothing that says that Potiphar one day becomes a believer. We don't have any of that. But here's what we do know. It didn't matter to Joseph. He was going to be faithful. And somehow, you know, I love this. I love this. You know, look, we're not going to convince everybody. But the greatest compliment we can ever have is people say to us, you know, I don't believe in the God you serve, but I can't explain you. I, I just don't understand. I actually, I, this story impacted me so much, I actually purchased, I kid you not, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I purchased a um, domain name. It's called thejosepheffect.com. Nothing there, so don't bother going right now, but I'm going to do something with it. If you have any ideas, come and talk to me about it. But this is called the Joseph effect. It got to the point where everything Joseph touched, I said, what's going on, man? And Potiphar sees it. He knows that God is with him. It says, when the master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Not just a slave now, now you are an attendant. By the way, that word attendant translated into English is Sergio. Servant, minister, that's what he became. I love that. And it says, and he entrusted, Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge to his household of all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Did you catch that? The Lord blessed the house of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The Lord blessed the house of this guy who's not even a believer because of this guy who is a believer. Some of you ought to be saying, thank you, man. Thank you. Some of you ought to be sit, turning around to somebody next to you and go, man, I, thank you. Thank you for praying for me. Thank you for being a believer. You should be turning to God and saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Are you following what I'm saying here? This is, I love this story because there's so much here. That's why we're taking three weeks to go through this story. There is so much here that is so powerful. Listen to what the story says. How many times have you said, God, I am so good. Why is he getting blessed and he hates you? God, I'm a good person. This one is not. Why are you blessing my neighbor? Why does he or she have more than I do? Uh, maybe it's because you're the neighbor. I don't know. Just a thought. The blessing of the Lord was on everything part of her head, both in the house and in the field. So, smart man, he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. 
Now, the hinge moment in the story. Everything is going great. I mean, Joseph has still got a master, but he's in a nice place. He's probably thinking, okay, I wonder how God's going to make this all work out, you know, and I'm going to stay faithful, I'm going to stay faithful. How does he stay faithful? It's because he knows. He says to himself, what's the story? What's the story that I want people to tell when I'm on dead and gone about me and about God, about our friendship? So he stays with it. And then it says, now Joseph was well built. How many of you work out? I know some of you guys, yeah. So that's a good thing for health. It's not a good thing in this situation, though, just so you know. Be careful. He is well built and handsome. See, now I, I want you to catch this because it says that about who? Joseph. This is important because sometimes we kind of infer things on others. It just says that he was well built and handsome, right? And it says, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now, time out. Let's go here. We always assume that Potiphar's wife was this gorgeous woman. And maybe she was, but she could have been ugly. I think sometimes we give Joseph a little too much credit, you know what I mean? I'm just saying, it's possible, right? We don't know. We know that he was handsome and well-built. We don't know much about her. Probably was okay because Potiphar's wife, you know what I mean? But let's be honest. We don't know how old she was. We don't know what she was like, right? So I just a little side note. I'm just saying, you know, think about that for a second. So now it says <coughs> that she says, come to bed with me. Now I'm going to give you three words today. Three words. If you've ever been afflicted by temptation, I want you to remember these three words. This is the easy way of doing things. Okay? This is like, this is like avoiding temptation 101. It's very simple, and it's right here in the story. The first thing it says is, but he refused. Did you catch that? So I want you to, to think of the word refuse. Put it across your mind, refuse. But he refused. But he refused. I love that. Who is Potiphar's wife? For you. Is it okay if I get a little personal with you? See, because we look at a story like this and our temptation to say is, what an amazing story. Wow. Poor Joseph. How is it all going to end? And we, we don't realize that maybe the story is about us. And maybe God wants us to read this story so that we would say, who is it that's coming to us? Or what is it that's coming to us saying, come to bed with me? Maybe for some of you, Potiphar's wife is a computer screen. And maybe pornography 
is saying to you, come on. Or maybe for some of you, Potiphar's wife is an addictive substance. And, and maybe, maybe for some of you, you started off with a, a legitimate injury, and then you began to just take a painkiller, and, and the next thing you know, you needed more painkillers and more painkillers and more painkillers. And you're like, it's not my fault. But you realize, deep down inside, all of us, deep down inside, we realize there's something wrong. Maybe for some of us, Potiphar's wife is a gambling habit or other destructive habit that we have. Right? Isn't that true? Is it possible? I mean, it's not just some woman. You know, for me, for me, it's coming home at 7, 7.30 at night, 8 o'clock sometimes, and I'm starving. And I know. Refuse. Refuse. But it beckons me. Come on, before you go to bed, have some of this, right? Are you, are we, are we okay here? Listen to me. I don't know what it is for you. It could be anything. It could be resentment. It could be a compulsion to control or to manipulate. Maybe it's something that, maybe it's the allurement of just being able to gossip. Maybe it's the invitation of ego. Something inside of you is saying, man, this is, just come to bed. You can do this. I don't know what it is for you. But something in your life is like Potiphar's wife. And what? uh, Potiphar's wife. And you know what? Joseph said, I refuse. Are you with me on that one? Sin is a real thing, man. I remember the first denominational employment that I ever had. I was teaching first and second graders at Pearl River Elementary School in New York. And I had a little worship corner. I think I've shared with you about this. And we, and we would have worship there, and then we would read books in there. And I remember one time I just said, okay, now, I was trying to teach about forgiveness. I said, you know, so what needs to happen for us to have forgiveness? And without missing a beat, little Robin, little Korean little boy, he raises and he goes, well, first thing we got to do is sin. <laughs> and I, yeah, no. <laughs> we don't got to sin, right? James chapter 4, verse 7 says, submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. Refuse. There was this Popular anti-drug uh, slogan. Remember that one? Yeah, go ahead. What was it? Just say no. That's what Joseph was saying. You know, I'm just, I'm just going to refuse. Just say no. Don't go there. James 1, 14 and 15, he says, But each one is tempted when by his own evil devices he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it is gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. Imagine if Eve would have refused at the tree. How are we doing? Refuse. That's what he did. Refuse. The Great Wall of China. This was a gigantic structure. It still is. Cost a lot of money. A lot of labor. It took years and years and years and years and years to build. And when it was finished, It was 
taunted us impregnable. That the enemy could never breach it, but not, but it was breached. You know why? It wasn't breached because somebody crashed the wall and was able to destroy the wall. It was breached because somebody was able to bribe the gatekeepers. So you got to stop sin at the gate. Refuse. Stop it at the gate. Now look, number two, are you ready? It says here, so he refused. And then he says these words, with me. So he tries to, to somehow support that refusal. With me, he says, in charge, he told her, my master, that's your husband, by the way, does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you. Because you are his wife. And then he says these words. Don't forget these words because these words are the hint to the second thing he does. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? The second thing you do, if refuse doesn't work, maybe you need to remember. So you want to refuse and you want to remember. Remember what? Remember who you are. Remember who God has called you to be. On Wednesday, remember you sat in here on Sabbath. And you weren't just sitting here to warm the pews. You were sitting here so that God could be worshipped and you could be blessed. How could I do this thing against Potiphar? How can I do this thing against those who have trusted me? When the sudden thought, the strong seductive temptation comes in my life, I remember. I remember that little Peekskill church who paid for my education so that I could become a pastor. I remember Omar Grieve and Elder Kretschmar who trusted me. I remember my wife who sacrificed so much to be a pastor's wife. I remember my daughter who looks up to me. And how could I ever disappoint her? I remember all the students that I've taught who think that I am somebody that I'm really not. But I don't want to disappoint them. I remember. I remember my cause for God's glory. I remember my friends. Some of you are in here. I remember you, my congregation. And so if I make this mistake, what's it going to do to them? What's it going to do to their faith? I remember. I remember God. I remember. How could I do this against God? How could I disappoint him who saved me from such, such a pit of hell? I think about all that I would have forfeited if God had not saved me, if he hadn't plucked me out of the fire. How can I betray his confidence? How can you? Why is it so hard for us 
to remember. I remember uh, Tony Campolo. Anybody ever remember Tony Campolo? I'll never forget one time he was doing this talk. It was so good. He was talking about teenagers in love and about the temptation as they're driving somewhere. And they're just, they want to be strong. They're Christian. And all of a sudden, you know, they're parked. And it's dark. And they want to be strong. But she looks at him. He looks at her. And they just want to be strong. And suddenly they feel this urge to move towards each other. If you would look at the car from the back, it would look like one person with two heads. You know what I mean? And they're just about to kiss and then, because they're so weak. And then suddenly they see headlights. And she recognizes it's dad. And suddenly they're strong. <laughs> wow. Suddenly they have the strength that they never thought they had before. That's what remember does, right? Remember says, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, dad's watching. The world is watching. Angels are watching. The universe is watching. I cannot do this. I have to remember this. I have to refuse, and I have to remember I will not be sucked in by the seduction of pleasure, by the image preservation, by peer approval. I will not, will not. I cannot. Because I remember. And then, if remember doesn't work, it says, one day, verse 11, he went into the house to attend to his duties. Dutiful. And none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, once again, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and what? Ran out of the household. Refuse, remember, and run. Run. If refuse doesn't work and remember doesn't work, you just run, man. Just run. This is the easy way of overcoming temptation. I know I'm giving you some like, this is like, really? No, I'm telling you, this is pretty simple. This is how Joseph did it. You refuse, you remember, and you run. You run for your life. And it's not because, listen to me, listen to me. Because I struggled with this. Because there's nothing to do with salvation. Jesus died for you on the cross. He wants you to live victoriously, and, and, and he's fine with you failing. I'm, please, some of you have failed during the, the, the refuse part. Some of you have failed during the remember part. Some of you have even failed during the run part. I get it. I understand. This is not about salvation. Jesus has, has shed his blood for you. If you've accepted that, you are saved. This has to do with the glory of God. This has to do with the kingdom. This has to do with the big picture. Are you following what I'm saying here? This is, the, the, don't get caught up in the, oh man, I better, I better be good. No, you cannot be good. But you can say, God, help me to refuse. God, help me to remember. God, help me to run. My knees are not good. I want you to know that. I got really bad knees. But if I got to run for God's glory, I'm running for God's glory. I won't ride a bike for God's glory, but I will run. I'm kidding. 
<laughs> some people get that, some people don't. I'm not going to worry about it. I wonder how many times I've been at that moment, that moment of negotiating the principles I espouse. How about you? Some of you are stressed out. You're just a few drinks, a night to relax. That's all. At least that's how it starts, and then there are a few more drinks, sometimes a little earlier in the day. And then one day you have this chronic addiction, and you're wondering what in the world happened. Or maybe it's that attractive woman who is neglected by her husband. And she begins to dabble with flirting. And then one day gets into a deep discussion with this man. And it gets out of hand, explodes into a full-blown affair, and it becomes adultery. Run before that. Or the clerk or accountant is in the bind and uses just a few dollars that don't belong to him. And the intent is to replace it the next day, but he forgets. And then he's in the bind again. What's the harm? Nobody will ever know. But a few become a few more, and then it becomes embezzlement. Run. Run. Refuse. Remember. Run. Or maybe the leader the leader who compromises justice and principles with the excuse that it is better to preserve credibility for a further agenda. I'm not going to die on this hill. I will die on the next hill. And every little hill that you don't die on that you should have died on weakens you for the big hill that should come. And then we wonder why our nation and our world is for want of leadership. Because we've turned leadership into politics. Politics is one thing, leadership is another. And God is looking for courageous leaders. Courageous leaders who will look at life for what it is and say, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And I will not let the facade continue any further. I will refuse, I will remember, and I will run. I heard about this uh, rodent from Scandinavia called the lemming. You heard about the lemmings? It's a crazy, crazy, crazy rodent because they live a normal life and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they just start running towards the ocean and then they go into the ocean and commit mass suicide. And the, the scientists are going, what on earth would cause these rodents to do this? It really messes with evolution, by the way. They're just, they're like, why? Why is this happening? So they begin to study it and they begin to realize what was going on. You see, it gets to a point where it gets where they're running out of food, and so they decide to start looking for food. And so they begin to work together, going down these mountains, looking for food, and they find some food, and then they look for some more. And as they're looking, they, they may traverse a little stream. Oh, okay. They go over the stream. No problem at all. 
And then they get to a place that's a little bit, little bit bigger river. Okay, well, let's go. They go over the river. No, we made it to the other side. No problem. We lost the food, but no big deal. Okay, let's get some food, right? And then they get to a lake. They're like, okay, we've got to make it across the lake. They make it across the lake little by little. They lose more and more, but you know what? They're going to just they're gonna keep at it. And then they get to the ocean. They think, let's oh, just know the big lake. And they all die. Is that what happens with us? That first little thing may just seem like a little stream. The next is a river, and the next a lake, and the next thing you know, you're being sucked in by the waves of the ocean, and you don't even know what happened. Refuse. Remember. And run. I want to read you something here as the worship team comes up and joins me up here. This is a piece written by Portia Nelson. It's an autobiography in five short chapters. I'm going to read all five chapters to you right now. But they're short. Chapter 1. And see if you can identify with this. Chapter 1, I walk down the street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find my way out. Chapter 2, I walk down the same street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again, I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there, and I still fall in. It's a habit now. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault, and I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. Refuse, remember, run. So she kept the cloak beside her until her master came home. And she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you bought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left the cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is, how your, say, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Now, we don't know who he was angry with. We just know he was angry. Joseph's master took him and put him in a prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. You know, truth be told, what he did was punishable by death. But Potiphar would not kill him. And while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. That's what it says. 
While Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. Thanks, Jesus. It's good to be in prison with you now. How does he do it? Because he is asking himself over and over and over again, what is the story that I want people to tell when this is over? What is the story that I want people to tell about me and about my God and about our relationship? And Joseph does what any young man would do who is convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has a dream and a plan for him, and he keeps going. I know, I know how this is going to end. I don't know how, when, when, but I know how it's going to end. I know God has given me this dream. I'm going to keep at it. I'm going to keep at it. I'm going to keep at it. And every step makes him a better person, makes him prepared for next week's message.